Today's audio edition of Not Boring is brought to you by Masterworks. What are you supposed to do with your money right now? The market is choppy, 97% of outstanding bonds are yielding less than 5%, and savings accounts aren't any better. Preserving your net worth is as hard as it's ever been, but that's where Masterworks.io comes in. Masterworks.io lets you invest in blue chip art by artists like Banksy, Monet, and Basquiat. I actually just invested in a Basquiat myself. It took 15 minutes or less, and I learned something while doing it. It was actually really fun. Art is a $1.7 trillion asset class that outperformed the S&P by 180% between 2000 and 2018, according to Art Price, with almost no correlation to the stock market. In fact, 86% of wealth managers recommend investing in art, an asset class that has historically been only accessible to the wealthiest of the wealthy. But no more. I'm not one of them. Masterworks.io is making art accessible to everyone. Here's how. Masterworks qualifies a painting with the SEC, takes it public through a reggae offering, and makes shares available to their 100,000 investors. So if you're ready to invest like a billionaire, head to masterworks.io and use the promo code NOTBORING to skip the 25,000-person waitlist. Again, that's masterworks.io, promo code NOTBORING. See important information at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Wednesday and welcome to Not Boring. That was, of course, My House by Flo Rida, because we're talking to Flo Crivello about working from your house and doing the best work of your life. So let's get to it. Today, we have a first. Uh, I'm here with Flo Crivello, the CEO and founder of Team Flow, and we're doing a little bit of an interview. I've never done this before, but uh, Flo and I talked about it. Uh, Not Boring Syndicate is a proud investor in Team Flow, uh, and we wanted to have a conversation to just kind of hear what Flo and the team are up to, what they're building, and why. So Flo, thanks for being here. Thanks for being my first interview guest. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about Team Flow, and kind of how you got here? Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm uh, flattered and honored to, to be your first. Um, so yeah, about me. Um, um, well, I'm, 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 I'm Flo, but my real name is Florent. I just go by Flo. Um, I used to work at uh, Uber for five years. Um, uh, I'm French, but I've been in the Bay Area for eight years. And I have been working on Team Flow for about eight or nine months now. And the way it came about is, I would actually say there were two funding moments for, for Team Flow. The first one was when I was at Uber, um, at some point I had a team that had an amazing sense of camaraderie. Well, like it just, there was this amazing culture in this team. And at some point the team had to go remote because we were launching in a bunch of cities simultaneously. And I just saw that sense of camaraderie vanish immediately, right? And not only that, but I also saw that it became much harder to work together all of a sudden, right? And so I remember that day specifically where there was an adage, you know, there was like one server that was down. And so we had to deal with a bunch of stuff to deal with it, like, you know, ops and customer support, marketing and engineering and all of that. And it was not my first adage, right? But it was the first time that it was so painful, you know, like jumping between Zooms and like trying to coordinate everybody when everybody was not in the same room. And I remember at the end of that day, it was like 8 p.m. or something at the office. And I remember like sitting back on my chair and, and looking around me and I was exhausted. And then I saw a, 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 a team literally like chugging beers around our desk area. 
And I was like, this could be us. And, and, and that's when I realized really like the reason that, that made it so painful was like this, this whole like remote situation. And so I always had that in the back of my mind when I left Uber. I was like, hmm, like there is really something that's missing with the remote experience now. And then around March 2020, I read a blog post by John Palmer, who's a former designer from Snapchat that's called Spatial Interfaces. Highly recommend it. And he basically makes the case for spatial interfaces. It's like, oh, you know, like what, what would a Zoom, a spatial Zoom look like, for example? And literally from the moment I closed that tab to now, I've been working on, on TeamFlow full-time. Uh, I, I just started by like hacking it together. And like within a night, I had like a very rough working prototype. And I, I just got sucked in, basically. That is, that's incredible. And I think this is going to be a theme that we're going to hit on throughout the post. This combination that you have of kind of reading and writing and also the execution side. So taking kind of the theory and then applying it. Can you explain a little bit what TeamFlow is? And that'll lead into another question that I have on another piece that I know that we're both a big fan on. Right. So TeamFlow is a virtual office for remote and hybrid teams. Right. So the way it works is that you see your video in a bubble on the virtual office floor plan. You can move it around with your mouse and with your keyboard and you can only hear and be heard by people around you. Right. So the idea is that it's not like Zoom. It's not something that you only open when you're in a meeting. It's something where your entire team hangs out all day. Right. And when you want to chat with someone, you just walk up to them and you say hi and you book them on the shoulder. Right. And just creates a much more uh, natural, organic way of working together. And so as we've discussed, I think TeamFlow also reminds me a lot of the, the meta layer that Kevin Kwok wrote about in The Art of Collaboration, where, you know, he, he describes Slack as kind of this fail safe, right? Like if everything is not working in Figma or the other collaborative tools, you, you go to Slack and figure it out. Feels like to me, TeamFlow is kind of that meta coordination layer where everyone, not only their, their kind of bubbles and their personalities can live there, but also the, the apps and products that people use for work live in the same space. How do you think about uh, the integrations and, and TeamFlow as that meta-coordination layer? Right, 100%. Well, I, I, I think, you know, collaboration is about so much more than communication. And I think that the job to be done of an app like TeamFlow or, or, or Zoom or anything like that is not just about showing faces and allowing voice and video to go through. It's really allowing you to do your work and do the job of the meeting, right? And today, I think that this experience the meeting experience, I think, is very broken in, in very many ways, right? You have to, like, open a Google Doc and open five, four tabs in the background. And I could eat comment tab fatigue, right? Like, you always have to, like, switch back and forth and all of that stuff. Um, and so, yeah, in, in TeamFlow, basically, the idea is that you can open all of these apps around you in this space, right? So you can have one room for the Project Firefly launch meeting, right? And, and the space is persistent, right? And so in that Project Firefly room, you're going to be able to have your... Uh, meeting notes open and your launch timeline and your Figma and your Google Docs and all of that stuff, right? And I think the very fact that it's persistent makes a huge difference, right? Like you, you always see companies uh, when uh, a deadline is looming for an important project, they set up what they call a war room. And that's like super important and it's very effective at actually pushing a project through, through, through the finish line. And I think the fact that today we don't have that anymore, the fact that we don't have any room anymore is a huge deal, Right. And so to get back uh, to, to, to your question regarding uh, that uh, essay by, by Kevin, um, yeah, so we, we think of two layers of integration. One of them we call like, the naive integration and the other the native integration. So right now, the, the, the way the integrations work is that they're basically iframes that you open in TeamFlow, right? So it's great because it's very versatile. You can open a bunch of stuff. Um, but over the, the longer term, we're going to build first-party apps on TeamFlow. Right. And so we're going to offer deeper APIs around identity, around authorization, around payments, around all of that management. Um, 
And so, you, you know, again, we think it's going to be a, a much more seamless way of working because today, not only do you have to open four tabs, you also have to create four accounts or each of the tools that you're using, right? Like, just imagine if every time you're at the office, you know, you, you had to, uh, I don't know, you want to whiteboard your someone and first they have to create a whiteboard account, right? <laughs> you want to take notes, it's like, oh, you have to, first you have to create this account here, like enter your password and like confirm your email here. Whereas here on Teamflow, it's just like you open the app and boom, immediately it's just there in the space and everybody can use it. Right. And so I, I really, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I am a team of one right now. So I've been using Teamflow. I've been inviting people in for meetings. But when it really struck me the other day was I, I opened up a YouTube video and I was watching it just kind of in my Teamflow space. But you can imagine a team watching a video together instead of all hitting play at the same time. You just go in the room, the video's playing, and you can imagine that across all different things, that it's just fully synchronous and it doesn't feel nearly as hacked together, which I think kind of brings me to one of my next next big themes here, which is just remote work and how 1.0 the experience that we're all having right now is versus what it could be. So can you tell me about the remote opportunity as you see it and then what needs to happen to really make remote either as good or even, I think you've said it could be better than in person. So how does that all evolve? Yeah. First of all, I I really do think that remote is still massively underappreciated, right? And I do realize it's been hyped, but I still think it's it's very underhyped, right? I, I mean, it's hard to think of one industry that is not going to be turned upside down by remote, right? Um, I think that a few things are going to happen that are going to really change everything for remote. And, and one of them has already happened in COVID, you know, and I think obviously the genie is never going back into the bubble, right? People have had a taste of it, you know, both employees and employers, right? And so it's just, it's just too good to, to pass upon and like nobody is going back, you know? I mean, Oracle of all companies is, is, is going remote now, you know, and they were like the most, the most uh, resistant to it. Um, and then I also think, I mean, there's going to be two categories of changes that are going to happen that are going to make the remote experience very different. The first one is, is technical. You know, I think we're going to have a bunch of tools like, like Teamflow uh, that are going to, to, to make the remote experience much better. And I mean, if you think of the suite of tools that we have today to work just in general, right? Like when we have Google Docs and Figma and email and all of that stuff. And sometimes I wonder, like, how did we ever used to work without that? Like, how did people used to work before GitHub, you know? I think that 10 years from now, we're going to wonder the same thing with tools that are not mainstream today. And, and hopefully, uh, Teamflow is, is one of those. Um, I also think another category of change that's going to happen is, 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 a, is a cultural change. Um, there is that uh, essay, I think, by, by John Cochrane, uh, an economist, uh, where he talks about a free solo climbing. That's like climbing with zero gear. And he talks about how in the 60s, the record for free solo climbing was something like 50 days for the El Capitan thing in uh, Yosemite. Um, and in 2017, there was four hours for like the exact same climb and no equipment, right? So th- there was no technological improvement there. Literally, the only change was the knowledge that people have about how to climb that mount, right? And I think the same thing is going to happen with remote, which is that especially as more teams become remote, the best practices are going to spread and teams are going to become better and better at being remote. And so we have to realize that right now the remote experience works mostly, but it's as bad as it's ever going to be. It's only going getting better from now. Yeah, it reminds me of the four-minute mile as well, which is even less kind of technical sharing and more just people seeing that it's possible to do it well. So Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, and then within a year, 10 other people broke the four-minute mile just because they saw that it was possible. And so I think now people look at 
GitLab and they say, this is how you do remote. This is the kind of best in class. And maybe that's one way of doing it. But where do you come out on the sync versus async? Because I mean, I think their their process is more and more and more become asynchronous and it's less social and all of that. I would imagine you'd, you'd uh, disagree with that a little bit. Uh, on the margin, right? I think I, I do agree that remote work is more asynchronous than collocated work, relatively speaking. And I think asynchronous is awesome for a bunch of reasons. I do believe that some uh, teams push it a bit further than that. And I, I, I disagree with uh, the school of thought, which is that, oh, you need to go 100% async. I, I totally disagree with that. And, and by the way, I have interviewed you know, dozens of GitLab employees about that. And what I have found is that, especially managers, spend more than 50% of their time in synchronous meetings. Uh, so people think that GitLab is 100% async. It is Kind of true for ICs, like designers and, and engineers. Uh, but even them sometimes talk about, designers especially, or, or product managers, they talk about how they miss synchronous time for brainstormings and all of that. So I, I, I think that um, there is no substitute for seeing people's faces when it comes to building relationships, right? And one thing we always hear about remote is that things feel very transactional and very formal all of a sudden. And I think the reason is because everything is async. And sometimes we hear things like, oh, might as well work just with a bunch of contractors, you know? And so again, I think that you lose a lot of that culture and a lot of that camaraderie that you would have had in the office that is just super important. You know, I think Paul Graham says the moment as a startup that you stop going for dinner in the evening, uh, you're not a startup anymore and you're toast, you know? Um, and so, and, and then there's also studies, right? There was that the MIT study on the 2,500 employees uh, that showed that um, the most productive teams were the ones that were spending the most time face-to-face. And so they actually looked at the correlations between face-to-face time or text interactions, and they found that face-to-face is by far the most useful and text interaction is the, le- is the least useful. Um, and, 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 you know, I think that I know of no greater indictment of the asynchronous model than the performance of uh, the Slack stock uh, over the pandemic. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, Slack did okay. You know, obviously they, they, they got acquired for a nice amount, but I mean, Zoom skyrocketed and Zoom is very obviously synchronous, you know, and meanwhile, Slack has been kind of flat. Um, and so I think, I think the market has spoken here. This takes me to another question. One of the things that impressed me the most with how you're thinking about TeamFlow is this combination of the virality of a Zoom with a stickiness of a Slack. How do you think about that? I mean, I think we can make a broader point here and step back a little bit. I mentioned it earlier that, you know, we were first kind of introduced or I was first introduced to you by reading your blog and reading something that I've referenced a lot of times, which is your summary of uh, seven powers. And so you obviously thought a lot about kind of the theoretical side of strategy and then the fundamentals of strategy. But then you also have this, this experience at Uber, just kind of hyperscaling things and building teams and just getting shit done. So one, how do you think about the balance of those two of strategy and execution? And then two, how is that kind of coming into play here at TeamFlow, where I really think there's this, you know, you have to be really, really fast in the beginning, but you have this combination of virality and network effects that I think is really powerful if it works. So that's a lot to digest, but take it where you will. Uh, yeah, so the, the balance between strategy and execution is, is an interesting one. I, I don't think of it necessarily as a balance. I actually think these two go in, hand in hand, and I think that your execution informs your strategy. Uh, there is that amazing uh, uh, phrase from, a, I believe, some article in The Atlantic or something that goes, uh, the, the spider thinks with its web. 
And I, I think about this all the time. You know, it's like basically literally the spider has offloaded some of its cognitive function to its web. And so the way it works is that when a bug gets caught in the spider's web, then like the, the spider goes and eats it or whatever, or wraps it up or whatever. And then that part of the web is destroyed. And so they reconstruct it in a different way, which makes that part of the web more responsive to future bugs because they're like, hmm, you know, like bugs seem to get caught in that part of the web. So in the future, I'm going to pay more attention to that. So that way, when they're somewhere else on the web, they, 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 they're alerted more acutely when someone gets caught in the same place, right? Um, and so I really think of, of TeamFlow and generally of work and of execution versus strategy exactly in the same way. Like when I started working on, on TeamFlow, again, I had this very crappy prototype in a few hours. It was just like a few bubbles that you could move with your, with your keyboard uh, on that canvas. And initially, I did not think of it as a B2B business. I was just like hacking, you know, in my, in my bedroom. And, and then I was like, oh, you know, it'd be good if I could have a whiteboard here because I started having like team meetings or like meetings with my friends there. I was like, oh, you know, I want to express myself. And then I started opening iframes to have games with them. And then I was like, oh, I want to take notes in here. And then little by little, it really was shaped by the execution. The vision was shaped by the execution, not, not the other way around. And I was like, oh, wait, like this is, this is, and then I was reminded of the experience I had at Uber. I was like, oh, wow, this is the thing I was looking for back then. You know, this is actually a B2B product, you know? Um, and so I, I think people overestimate the extent to which visions come fully formed when you start a startup, right? It's not like there was a thing that was like handed to you from the months in Iowa. It's like a thing that really is crafted over months and years, right? Visions actually and strategies take a very long time to craft and we're still crafting hours at TeamFlow. Um, so, so, so I think, I think that's, that's kind of like the interplay between uh, strategy and, and, and execution. Um, I think you also touched upon that, that, that part of, you know, building a quality product, but at the same time, in a way, trying to capture the market because all these network effects and this virality. Again, I, I, I think that you can actually get both if you hustle. Uh, and I think that especially a small team can, can get so far uh, building both, both of those. And I think that with a fast iteration, I think you can, go, you can both build the product fast and build a product of high quality. Speaking of team, so you've done two things kind of during the pandemic that a year ago people would have said is impossible. We'll start with building a team. You had a tweet talking about putting 13 hours a day in for two months to build this team. Can you walk us through that process a little bit, why it was so important to you to get the best quality engineers and designers on this, and then what the team looks like today? Yeah, um... I mean, why it was so important is, I, I mean, I'm a huge believer in, uh, I think, the YC adage that the, the, the people you hire is the company you build. And it's funny, I have made this mistake in the past. Everybody always says that people who you, you hire are the most important thing. And then you kind of have to touch the stove to realize it's, it's hot. And I mean, I've made this mistake in the past of like, you know, rushing to fill up a, a seat that was desperate to fill. And it went terribly wrong. And I really set the team back by six or 12 months. And I'm, I'm never making this mistake again. So I think this time I took a very sequential approach, which was instead of spending 30 or 50% of my time hiring for six months, I spent 100% of my time hiring for two months. Um, and I think almost 300 people went through the funnel. Um, there is that, that book, and, and, and about, that's also about like the how I went about it. There is that book that I highly recommend that's called Who? The, the A Method for Hiring by Jeff Small, I believe. Um, and he, he has this whole methodology with like a few uh, rounds of interviews and, uh, and all of that stuff. But I think the main insight is that he says, it's not what, it's who, right? Your product, your problem is in your company or not like, oh my God, you know, we have a retention problem. We have a problem with the bugs. We have a problem with the products. Like, no, actually the who is the most important because the who determines the what always, you know? And so, I mean, you know, I, yeah, I ended up spending these two months with uh, this, uh, this, this, this crazy uh, 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 rhythm. And um, so I had, you know, when I started, I hired one, one person I knew from uh, Uber. And then from these two months with 300 interviews, I hired four people. 
Um, and I think the hardest part of that all is like, you're so chomping at the bit and you're so desperate to start working, start building and start executing. And, and you meet people whom I would describe as, I hate saying that, but like as, as I dependent, right. Or like as top 15%, right. And those are the hardest to pass upon, right. People, when they hear, well, like, you know, take your time hiring, they, they think, you know, yeah, you don't, you want to avoid bad people. It's like, no, actually you just want to hire literally nothing less than like a top 5%, you know, um, and so passing on the album tens or passing on like the top 15% is really the hardest part, the hardest part. Um, and so, you know, I was, I, 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 I'm very grateful actually that I had a few mentors that like I, I called in the evenings and like, man, you know, I'm like, I had interviews in, I have this album 10, the guy is good. You know, he's not a legend, but he's good, you know, and it's like, don't hire him yet. You know, you want to hire these guys, maybe at employee 100. I was listening to the founder of Retool on the 20 minute VC with Harry Stebbings the other day. And he said that. One of the things that he got, John Collison and Patrick Collison are two of investors. One of the things that he got from them was essentially exactly what you're saying, which is John was throwing out as CTO candidates, people who were the CEO of $10 billion publicly traded companies. He's like, you should go for those types of people, like only the very, very best of the best. And so how's that translated? What is a team today? What does it look like? And actually, where in the world are they? Because now you have access to this kind of global talent pool. Yeah. Um, they are a little bit all over the place. It's funny because initially I wanted to hire only within the Americas to avoid the uh, time zone drama. I do believe that is one of these things with remote that is super, super hard. And I actually ended up compromising on that one. And we hired someone in the UK because he was actually a 10 of 10. You know, the guy has like 30 years of experience. He's like an absolute computer graphics genius. He's, he's absolutely amazing. And, and, you know, we, we chatted with him and, and he agreed to work on very uh, American-like hours. So, like, you know, he basically wakes up at something like 12 and he works until midnight or, or 1 a.m. Um, and, 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 and it's working out for him, you know. Um, so, otherwise, everybody else is in, uh, you know, we have someone in Ohio, we have someone in Arizona, we have someone in, in, in Colorado. Um, so, it's a little bit all over the place. Uh, and, I mean, the state of the team, I mean, I am extremely happy that I, you know, waited a bit more. Uh, and that I, that, that, I, that I really took my time to hire the right people because I, I'm a firm believer in um, what Zach Kentil talks about. In, and I think that's, that's a thing from Netflix as well, which is you're optimizing not for absolute amount of talent, but for density of talent, right? And what matters is the least talented person on the team, right? Um, and I really think that today the least talented person on the team, and I, I would be hard-pressed to even think who it is, maybe me, uh, is, is pretty darn talented. You know, and so that, that's really what we're optimizing for here. And every single one of the person, we have one guy, um, he, when we hired him, he was 17. Now he just turned 18. And one of the, we, we use a, a famous WebGL library to build our, to build our, uh, our product. And I enlisted the creator of that WebGL library, which is the world's biggest 2D WebGL library. And I enlisted him to interview people for the, for the thing. And we interviewed dozens and dozens of people. And then at some point I was like, man, like, it's just so hard to find people. And I was like, do you, like, who do you know? Like, can you, can you really? And he's like, yeah, I told you about this guy, but he's never going to want to work with you. And he's, and he told me he's better than me at, at this library that I created. Um, and we, we ended up getting him. <laughs> so, so, uh, so yeah, today, today the team is, is, is amazing. And it feels amazing to work with that team. It's probably the, the most talented team I've ever worked with. I, I don't think we've talked about this before, but what does your team's day look like? How do you use TeamFlow? Right. Well, we, we use it just like an office. So we um, open it up in the morning um, and, you know, we, we, we basically hang out there all day. Um, and so 
you know, we have a sprint planning, uh, a stand up at 10 a.m. and we have a sprint planning and retrospective every Monday morning. And, you know, these are literally the two only scheduled meetings we have. And so I think that was one surprise with us uh, with Teamflow is that I think in the same way that Slack pretended to kill email, I think we're killing the scheduled meeting. You know, uh, one thing we found with remote work is that people have a lot more scheduled meetings because they can't just, you know, poke each other on the shoulder anymore. And so in, in, in our case, because we're in the same space all day, we don't schedule any meeting ever. You know, and I actually think it makes it it makes it more fluid, makes it more organic, it makes it more efficient too. Because when people schedule half an hour on the calendar, they feel obligated to fill up the half hour, right? Well, in our case, you know, like if you if you have only like a, a thing that takes four minutes to talk about, people feel almost awkward to hang up the Zoom. It's like, well, I guess that's it. Bye. You know, nobody does that. Like most of the time, people fill it up. You know, was well, in our case, you know, because we're here all day. It's like, hey man, like quick question. What do you think of that? It's like, yeah, I think Batman. It's like, okay, like, and then I just go back to my desk. Um, or, you know, sometimes if we want to have a private conversation, Teamflow fills uh, uh, private offices. So, like, we literally drag ourselves to a room and then we can lock the door and, like, hey, like, follow me to my office. We need to talk about this thing real quick. Um, and and then, yeah, you know, we, we log out uh, in the evening, uh, you know, whenever we're done working. Do you have an open floor plan? Do you each have your own office? How do you think about kind of office layout when you're when you're doing it virtually? It's, it's both. And again, I think that's one of the amazing things about a virtual office is that the space is a lot more fluid than a physical office. So like creating a room, I mean, I don't even know what creating a room would look like in a physical office, but like in a virtual office, like a few clicks, you know? Um, and so we, we have, each of us does have uh, their own uh, office and then we do have a, a common working area in the middle. And so we find, we find ourselves going back and forth, you know, like when you're down to hang out and to be in this co-working mode, you, you just hang out in the common area. And sometimes when I need to be really heads down working on something requiring intense focus, then I just lock myself into the office. And so, again, you can close the door or leave the door open. But I think all of this kind of gives subtle clues about whether people should be free to interrupt you. You know, if I go to my office, it's a little bit when people go, like, like when people go to a booth in the physical office. You know, like I go to my office, I leave the door open. It means, oh, you know, if you want to chat with me, you can, but like don't t- come to me to talk about the weather, you know. And then if I lock the door, it means like, hey, like only come if something is on fire. You know, and so I think again, it's like a much more intuitive way to signal your 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 interruptibility status. That's so cool. I mean, I, I come from a company called Breather, which you know spent months and months and months and millions and millions of dollars building out office spaces. So the idea of just spinning them up in two seconds is wild. You know, the, the guy who introduced us, Dan Doyen, also comes from commercial real estate, and so I think the people who've been in the weeds on having to build offices and understand how much of a pain it is, how quickly the needs change, all of those things, I think, see the promise for being able to spin it up virtually. What does it look like when you remove the physical constraints? You kind of hinted at it there, but like, what's the world look like in 10 years when, when Teamflow is successful and people have the ability to spin up space? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're still scratching the surface, right? And I mean, those like the obvious benefits, like literally teleportation. Right, like if we if we introduced that feature in the physical world, like it'd be, it'd be life changer, right? Well, introducing that feature in the digital world and nobody's paying attention in a way. Uh, and so, yeah, the fact that you can just click on someone's name and boom, you teleport to them is is a huge deal, right? Like because when some, when people are on the office, if they're on a different floor, they might as well be remote anyway. Like we we saw that all the time. I do remember someone like you're not taking David off for five minutes, you end up like slacking them, you know. Um, what does the world look like if we're successful? I think. I, I think if today's labels market, that's really the, the one part I'm most excited about. It's like if today's labels market is a flea market, I think the labor market of 10 years from now is a Walmart, right? I think that the thickness of the market is literally increased by several orders of magnitude. 
you know, and so what that means is that again, you can right now as an employee, you can only work for an employer that's within the 20 miles radius from you. With remote, you can work with employers who are within a 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 miles radius from you, you know? Um, and I think that it's very hard to overstate the advantages of that. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, really, we think of remote as a city of 500 million people, you know, and, and it's going to be the, the world's biggest labor, labor market by a very, very wide margin. And I, I think that the second order effects of that are going to be huge. You know, I think we're only starting to see one of them, which is that it is starting to create a market for local governments. You know, the, the city of San Francisco famously is extremely mismanaged and uh, the tech industry has been captive from it for, you know, a few, a few decades now. And now we're seeing to see a, a lot of a very high profile departure from it. You know, Kiss for Boy is, is, is one of them. Uh, Elon Musk just moved to Texas. And, you know, I think that now you're not, you're not captive anymore. And so for the first time, cities are going to have to treat their citizens uh, as customers that they have to treat to, to serve, you know. I think another, another possible uh, second order effect is um, if you look in the second part of the 20th century when capital became so much more mobile, um, capital gains taxes plummeted. You know, because now now there was like an arbitrage opportunity. So like you, you couldn't, you, capital was not captive anymore, you know? And so I think the capital gains taxes in the 50s were 25% in the US, so they are 15%. Uh, obviously, there's like this cynical interpretation that's like lobbyism and whatnot, but I actually think it's just because it's, it's much more liquid now. I think that governments have made up for that loss in income by hiking up labor taxes and income taxes, you know, because labor is still, is still captive. It's very hard to move, you know? I think that that's going to change. I think that is going to be so much easier to move now that actually one of the second order effects is that we're going to see uh, labor taxes uh, go down. You know, um, I, I, I myself, I love San Francisco. I love California for a bunch of reasons, but we are like, we, we are hearing a lot of rumors about um, an increase in the already very high income tax in California. And I have many friends who are saying that's the tipping point for me. Like that's, I have no, no reason to stay anymore. So like if, if that happens, I'm going to, 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 to move. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I really think that, you know, a decade from now, most work is going to be remote. People are really going to start realizing that it's actually better than living together than, than, than being together in the same office. And, and we're going to see all of these second order effects. Uh, I mean, government is just one of them. Transportation, you know, like removing commute is huge, you know, like a double digit percent of visits to the ER or labor or, or like car accidents during commute. You know, what happens when you remove that? You know, what happens to the insurance industry? Again, I just think the second order effects will just starting to, to scratch the surface. It's going to be monstrously huge. Have we decided to partner with the, the Miami mayor to offer team flow to everybody who's relocating to Miami? That seems like the, the killer combination. You get the sunshine and you can work remotely with people wherever you are. We should totally do that. Uh, team flow Miami edition. Um, so another thing, so obviously you hired fully remotely. Another thing that you did fully remotely is fundraising and you did maybe as good a job as you could possibly do at the early stages. Can you walk me through what that process looked like? Was it also just a kind of time bound sprint? How did you bring together this all-star team of, of investors and who are they? Yeah. Um, so we did end up raising, uh, you know, Menlo Ventures uh, led the round and, uh, we had a few other investors We had Balajis from Evazen, uh, SV Angel, um, uh, Elad Gill and, and a few others. Um, I mean, I, I, I think there are all two angles under which to look at fundraising, right? One of them is the substance and the other one is kind of the hacks. And I think every time this question is asked, people are like, oh my God, how do you fundraise? What are your tips? People focus on the hacks. And I actually think that, and that's going to sound like a eat your vegetables kind of thing, but I think that the best way to fundraise is to have a good background, have great reference checks and be building an amazing business right? Have all the customers, have all their product and, and all of that. And I think we, we had most of that. I think, again, 
that's that's the most important part, right? And I think people should be less focused on the hacks and more focused on the substance of building a business and then fundraising takes care of itself. Now, about the hacks, um, I did hear that from a few of the VCs that I pitched uh, during that time, that this was the busiest they had ever seen the industry in their entire career. And I actually think some of it is actually because of remote, right? Now, all of a sudden, you need to like commute from uh, VC office to VC office on Sandy Hill Road. You can just like pack all of your meetings in one day. And so I think that is one of the most important hacks is to really pack your meetings as tightly as possible. And so my entire process was three weeks. And for the first week, all I was doing was just reaching out to folks, scheduling meetings, getting introductions. So it was like a full-time job of, of, of week one. And then week two were, was about um, the, 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 the VCs that I was um, slightly less excited about. Let's say I, mean, I was excited about all the ones I met. But week three was really the ones that I really, really wanted to, to have an investment from. And, you know, uh, Menlo was, was one of them. Um, and, and the reason why you, you do that, obviously, is to warm up and to craft your pitch and all of that stuff. And um, I pitched 120 VCs in, in these two weeks. Uh, so again, that was like a 13 hours a day kind of thing. And I think, so if I had to do it again, I would probably pack it a little bit less, a little bit less intensely. And in particular, I would schedule at least 15 to 30 minutes between meetings to regroup uh, and to take notes and to change my deck and to, you know, whatever. Because sometimes, I mean, I literally didn't even have time to go to the restroom. So I had to like get up, like, hey, I need to, to take a back break. You know, I've been, I've been in back-to-back meetings all day. Um, but I, I do believe that packing your meetings is super important. And the reason is that you're trying to create a market for your equity, right? And you're, it's, it's, all, it's very cliche, but it's very true. It's all based on FOMO, you know? And you're like, hey, you know, like, we already have 1 million committed, 1 million, 0.5 committed, 2 million committed, you know? And, oh, we meet again in 36 hours and we have another million committed, you know? So it's like, holy cow, like the, the, the round is filling up. I need to commit right now, right? right? Because otherwise, VCs are always going to push the can down the road. You know, they, they, that's their incentive. Um, and I have seen people and, and fellow entrepreneurs who build what I think is an amazing business and they're making traction and all of that. And they kind of go about eight, well, they take one or two meetings with VCs and they, and they stretch, you know, 20 meetings over two months and they, they're having the hardest time in the world to, to raise money. And it's very hard to reset that process after that because then, like, it's very hard to create the momentum if you don't have it from the get-go. Um, I, I, I think that's like probably the one biggest thing. It's just, it's just that. I mean, I saw that on a micro scale within the syndicate. It one, I think people just really resonate with the product right now and with your background and all of that. But two, as soon as I sent out the notification a few hours in that we were filling up, it was immediately that everybody came in. We had to close the round, all of that. And so I think, yeah, it's a combination of product team and then traction or FOMO in, in the round that I think is, is really valuable. Right. And so, so, I mean, there's also an aspect of it that you can't control, which is, it's a hot, it's a hot space right now, uh, remote, remote tools. Uh, I was speaking with another entrepreneur in the space industry and he was telling me about his metrics from a year ago and you, you, it was amazing. The guy was having good revenue for like a Series A and he couldn't raise a Series A because space was not as hot a year ago and now space is very hot and now he's raising money. So, you know, I also think there is an aspect of that that's just, you know, is your space fashionable these days? What was the biggest feedback or the feedback that you took the most seriously that either investor investors customers or even your team has had what do you think are the biggest challenges i guess that you're you're facing hmm. it's a good question probably distribution you know uh, we feel good about the product we're getting amazing feedback our nps score right now is 67 um but uh, we do hear all the time like oh first time founders focus a lot on product and second time founders focus on, on distribution and i think that that's 
one reason why Zoom was so successful, for example, is their distribution strategy was absolutely amazing. And so that is, that is the biggest thing. And it is going to be a very crowded space. You know, we think of it as every single smart person and every single person in tech has had their eyes on this issue for the last nine months. You know, so it's like the eye of Sauron was on this was on this issue, you know. And so I think if you think of it as a bell curve of how long does it take for someone to start thinking about the problem to like shipping, you know, I think right now we'll about right about before the tip of the bell curve. You know, we've started to see like a lot of uh, tools emerge. Um, and I, 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 I think that we're going to see a lot more in the next few months. So I think it's, it's competition and distribution are, are going to be the two biggest ones. Interesting. And so how do you think about distribution then? Yeah, well, I mean, we're blessed with, uh, and I hate saying that because it's like, it's kind of like the, the poor man's distribution, but it, it is, in our case, it's true that the virality is a huge deal, right? There is no way to use TeamFlow that doesn't result in more people knowing about it, you know? Um, and then, you know, we are going, at, at least initially, with a, a bottom-up distribution strategy, which is, you know, teams are trying it, uh, and then, you know, little by little, it spreads inside the organization very organically. Um, and then we are going to supercharge that with a, a sales force as well. Um, and that is going to look at the most engaged teams inside the biggest organizations and then reach out to the organizations and use that as fodder to, 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 to sell the organization uh, a bigger contract. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting to be able to talk to you at this point in the journey where I think good distribution looks obvious in hindsight, but it's hard to figure out kind of early on. And so now we right. have this hypothesis that it's going to be viral and then you'll be able to land and expand, but it'll be interesting to see how that, how that evolves. And I think that's why betting on the team ends up being so important because something in that strategy is going to go wrong. And then it's up to you to figure out how to fix it. Right. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, there is this good book by, um, I forgot his name, the, the Duck, Duck Go uh, founder, it's called Attraction. Um, where, where he, he, he lays out that framework uh, that we're adopting uh, 100% where it's like, oh, just experiment with a bunch of stuff, right? Brainstorm on like a dozen ways to, 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 to distribute your product and then really select the top three, four, five and then run a one, two weeks experiment with a few hundred dollars on each of those and then double down on the, on the ones that work. Um, so, you know, I, I think that like, that's just a startup game. Like everything changes so fast and, and we're still figuring it out as, as we go. Very cool. So how can people experience TeamFlow and what's kind of the best entry point? Is it bringing maybe the design team on? Is it onboarding the whole company? What should that onboarding look like right now in the early days of of TeamFlow? Yeah. So today, the thing that we see is working the best is, you know, signing up and then simply replacing your Zoom links on your calendar by TeamFlow links. Uh, and I think it really creates that hook that remain, that reminds the team to, to hang out there. And then we find that very organically teams just keep hanging around here because they're like, wait, actually my next meeting is in the same link. That's pretty rad. You know, or like, oh, it's in the same, it's in the same space. It's just like the, the room next door. So I need to close it, you know, and little by little, like teams just leave it open, you know, another thing we're seeing, uh, quite a few customers do is that they schedule uh, what they call together time or team flow time on a calendar. Uh, and so, you know, it's like 10 to 2 or 2 to 4. Uh, and it's like, hey, the rest of your time, you're free to have that uh, flexibility offered by remote work. That's awesome. But right now, like that is like a synchronous time. And we even if we're silent, we just go work together silently, but at least we're together, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, right now, you know, we're still uh, uh, on a wait list, uh, but we are onboarding people super fast. And so people can apply to the wait list on a teamflowhq.com. Cool. And what's the most fun thing that your team has done in team flow socially? Ah, uh, it's a good question. So we have a game room uh, where we have a, a scribble uh, open. That's like this thing where you draw and people have to guess where it is. We have a code name open. Um, 
I think that's probably the most fun thing is like from time to time, it's kind of like the game room, like the ping pong room. And again, I think that speaks to like the organic interactions that they built on TeamFlow where it's like, it's, it's very unscheduled. So it's like, ah, I'm tired, you know, it's like, it's like 6.30 p.m. I've been working all day. Like, hey, like, let's take a 30 minutes break and like, do, hey, are you guys down for like a, a, a quick screwball in the game room? Um, I think that's probably, yeah, it's probably the, 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 the best one. Cool. And then I know that today, I think we're releasing this on Thursday. Today, you're on Product Hunt. How can people support? Yeah. I mean, please go on Product Hunt and upvote it if you like the product. There is a, a video there that actually shows that, that game room and our office. Uh, the video is very, very raw, uh, voluntarily so. So I, I, I literally just saw show our office. You, you can see our, our business dashboard there and you can see the team hanging out there. Um, so yeah, you can go on Product Hunt and upvote the product and you can go on teamflowhq.com to sign it to the waitlist. Amazing. And I'll put both of those links in both the show notes and the essay. Flo, this was a ton of fun. I am so excited to be along for this ride and I, I can't wait to see how the launch goes. Uh, thanks so much for being on the Not Boring Podcast. Thank you so much, Becky.